Hello, and welcome to another episode of Finnerin's Wake. I can think of no other subject more deserving of the historian's attention, nor gratifying to the reader's curiosity, than the Roman Empire and the lives of its many Caesars. To say the very least, this is a theme of enduring interest, a timeless topic by which both the academic in his professorial chair and the layman reclined on his sofa cannot but be entranced. Well established is the old adage that Rome is the one city in the world to which, no matter their distance, all roads will eventually lead, like a hundred rivulets disemboguing into a mighty Latin ocean. We understand this in a physical sense, but it obtains culturally just the same. If we were to dare to retrace our steps and to seek without bias for the origins of our customs, laws, and life, for our beloved habits, our cherished mores, and our strongest institutions, we'd sooner find ourselves passing in front of the Pantheon en route to the Basilica of Peter. We'd taste the delicate sweetness of the ancient air by which the Palatine is perfumed, from which we gaze upon the depths of the Colosseum's dank subterranean chambers. In short, that eternal city marks our point of convergence, and we go there hopeful to learn all that we can. Historians and readers alike, we all join in making this most dignified and enriching of journeys, from which great wealth is to be reaped, and luminous wisdom gained. After a prolonged interregnum, inaugurated by the expulsion of Tarquin the Proud by Brutus the Mute, royalty had, at long last, returned to Rome. It did so at first in the figure of Julius Caesar, a man for whom, at this point, introductions are hardly needed. In brief, as a commanding general, Caesar's military genius was undeniable. As a chaser after women, the trait over which, bound in their modesty, our textbooks prefer silently to pass, his amorous appetite was quite near unslakeable. One's left only to wonder, of which of the two, land or the gentler sex, was he the more accomplished conqueror? I hate to disappoint, but we must reserve a study of Caesar's sexual exploits for another day. We focus, rather, on his wonderful achievements as a soldier. In the theater of war, he subdued Gaul and vanquished that nation's legendary hero, Vercingetorix, one of the most tenacious barbarians with whom Caesar ever contended. Then, from France he marched his legion to the banks of the babbling Rubicon, across which, after casting high the mysterious die of fate, he unhesitatingly waded. 
proceeding south, Caesar chased his erstwhile colleague, Pompey, across Italy, and then eastward toward Greece, along whose undulating coast the two forces came to blows. Victorious, he then pursued Pompey to the land of the Nile, that ancient world over which the descendants of Ptolemy still presided. To his horror, Caesar was greeted by the news that his elusive enemy was already dead. Caesar was, upon the completion of his liaison with Cleopatra and his return to Rome, named dictator for life. This unexampled boon was rather short-lived, for Caesar was stabbed twenty-three times in the theater of Pompey. At the youthful age of fifty-six, well before he could enjoy the rewards of his new lifetime appointment, he was killed by a conspiring coterie in the Senate. Pompey's Theater. It was a foreboding venue into which, dismissive of all warnings, the newly minted dictator perhaps too carelessly marched. The final wound was the product of another Brutus, a Republican martyr, and, until Caesar's very last breath, the dictator's unacknowledged son. The one honorific denied him, imperator or emperor, was reserved for and later bestowed upon his adopted son and successor, Octavian. Dissatisfied with the all-too-human sound of his given name, Octavian exchanged it for something grander. Many replacements were suggested to him. Eventually, he narrowed them down to two. Romulus or Augustus. He feared that the former might emphasize a bit too overtly his kingly aspirations. It was the name of Rome's legendary founder and brother Remus's fratricidal murderer. The latter befit the loftiness of his self-regard, and so he was renamed Emperor Caesar Augustus. Thus began the long succession of the Caesars, a history to which three of Rome's most important writers dedicated their studies. The first is Plutarch. Writing in Greek, he sought, more than anything else, the moral improvement of his readers. He composed his lives for the edification of his countrymen and for the benefit of a posterity into whom he hoped his lessons would be deeply instilled. He couldn't extricate himself from the influence of Greece, which led him to pair every noble Roman with a Greek of proportionate merit. Alexander the Great, for example, was depicted as the analogue of Julius Caesar, just as Lycurgus, the legendary founder of Sparta, was cast in the role of Numa's equal. Tacitus, his contemporary, 
wrote his annals and his history in a far less moralizing tone. He wanted, rather, to produce eloquent and concise Latin prose by which the history of Rome and its emperors could be faultlessly and seamlessly conveyed. He was, overall, less susceptible to the embellishments of his colleagues, and was unswerving from the straight path of chronological order. He achieved this laudable aim, and still we read him with enjoyment today. Finally, there's Suetonius. He is, by any measure, the least distinguished of the three. Neither the date nor the location of his birth are affirmed with any certainty in the historical record. He was probably born around A.D. 70, coincident with the Roman siege of Jerusalem during the reign of Vespasian in either northern Africa or southern Italy. He seems to have risen from obscurity with the help of a few well-placed friends and found himself happily employed by the imperial court. Under the reign of Hadrian, he was appointed chief librarian of Rome, a job that granted him access to countless archives and personal letters. All of a sudden, this upstart writer had at his disposal many volumes of manuscripts and correspondences, troves of gossip and data to which none but he was privy. Before his unceremonious dismissal from the imperial court, he's said to have been, quote, too familiar with the emperor's wife, Savina. He gathered enough information from these sources to write his most famous work, Lives of the Caesars. His project began with a depiction of Julius Caesar, the father and fount of all subsequent Caesars, and ended with one of Domitian. It spanned the Julio-Claudian and the Flavian dynasties, which, combined, lasted around 123 years. When writing about these dozen Caesars, Suetonius is seldom flattering. Of the twelve emperors included, three stand out as the recipients of his unwanted and uncharacteristic kindness. Julius Caesar, Augustus, and Vespasian. To these three men, he's noticeably deferential. As to the rest, no similar charity is extended. They are, rather, the victims of what can be, at times, Suetonius's dagger-sharp pen, and a burning imagination that has, on occasion, the tendency to consume itself. When given the choice between tales of intrigue to scandalize and parcels of truth to educate his audience, he always opts for the former. Calumny is to be preferred to veracity, and he knew how best to keep his reader's attention fixed. When dealing with such grotesque figures as Caligula and Nero, 
we forgive him his bias. In the stories he tells about these two monsters, no exaggeration is deemed too large. He's content to stretch the truth, if, by so doing, he's better able to further sully these detestable men. We ask ourselves, though, is this something for which we ought to deplore Suetonius? Should we exclude him from the ranks of the great historians for his fault? Well, I think not. Do we not itch, after all, to hear every bit of Caligula's and Nero's depravity, even if it's slightly contrived? Suetonius stands ready to satisfy us. And, for this reason, we mustn't be too harsh in our judgment of him. Still, we must recognize that we, his readers, are not the beneficiaries of a writer entirely faithful to the facts, but are rather the dupes of a man purveying dubious but entertaining tales. And thus, we proceed to delve into Suetonius, always ballasted with a hefty grain of salt. The excerpt I'm prepared to read is from Suetonius's entry on the Emperor Nero. What an extraordinary subject for our amusement and for our contemplation. The student of a Stoic, the child of a schemer, Nero is one of the oddest personalities to have graced history's unpredictable stage. Suetonius, perhaps more than any other writer, is mostly responsible for the image we have of this unusual man. Nero, that morbidly fascinating figure, fancied himself something of a Renaissance man. Of course, this term would have been foreign to the Latin citizens, the Romans of the first century A.D. In his time, he would be thought of as a budding polymath, one who has a certain skill applicable to many fields. Now, he considered his expertise in the field of politics to be unquestionable. But just as skillful was he in the realm of poetry and theater. Suetonius provides us a glimpse of what the audience thought of his varied uh, thespian performances. Quote, when he, Nero, was singing, it was not permitted to leave the theater, even for the most pressing of reasons. Thus, it is alleged that women gave birth during his shows, and many who were tired of listening and applauding when the entrance gates were all closed, either jumped furtively off the wall or else pretended to be dead and were carried out for burial. You could scarcely believe how nervous and anxious he was in competitions, or how he competed against his rivals, or how he feared the judge's verdict. 
The image depicted of the audience by Suetonius is absolutely remarkable. Think of the desperate measures they undertook, if only to avoid listening to another note of the unmusical emperor's voice. Women, he says, would prefer the pangs of labor, that very last torturous stage of gestation, to listening to this terrible performance. Spectators, who were more slaves than willing participants in the performance, literally risked life and limb by jumping over the gates in order to escape their captivity. It's extraordinary. Just imagine yourself being impressed to watch a show, to endure a terrible performance from which there was no escape. Indeed, the great lengths to which these miserable Roman citizens went to escape Nero's performances was almost comical. So too, I think, was it funny to see how, in Suetonius's words, anxious Nero was uh, when he was trying to impress the judges. Of course, these weren't judges in the traditional, unbiased sense, but mere lackeys who were compelled to adulate the emperor for whom they worked. And so, as Suetonius tells us, Nero would, quote, address the judges most reverently before he began his performance, assuming them that he had done all that he could, but the outcome for which they were to be the judges would be determined by fate. They, as wise and learned men, were to ignore what was fortuitous. Truly, there was never any doubt that the results were foreordained. Nero also participated in the chariot races, which were some of the more popular events in ancient Rome. And Suetonius tells us that he entered the chariot races, quote, on many occasions, even driving a ten-horse team at Olympia, the famous site at Greece, although in one of his songs he had criticized this very thing in King Mithridates. However, he fell from his chariot, and although he resumed his post, he was unable to finish abandoning the race before the end. He received the victory crown nonetheless. And so, unsurprisingly, even when he lost, he won. From his performances on the stage to his conduct in the Hippodrome, Suetonius then turns to the man himself. He tells us that Nero, quote, prostituted his own body to such degree that when virtually every part of his person had been employed in filthy lusts, he devised a new and unprecedented practice as a kind of game, in which, disguised in the pelt of a wild animal, he would rush out of a den and attack the private parts of men and women who had been tied to stakes. And, when he had wearied of playing the beast, he would be, quote, run through, 
end quote, by his freedmen. With this man, he played the role of bride, and he even imitated the shouts and cries of virgins being raped. End quote. It is a lurid, sadomasochistic depiction with which Suetonius leaves us. But it was probably only one of the more mild examples of Nero's sexual perversions. Aside from him being bestial in the bedroom and imitating the roles of both woman and man, he's known to have indulged in incestuous relationships, most notably with his scheming mother, Agrippina. As for his spending habits, he, quote, believed that the proper use for riches and wealth was extravagance, and that people who kept an account of their expenses were vulgar and miserly, while those who squandered and frittered away their money were refined and truly splendid, end quote. I think many of our modern politicians, by whom trillion dollars spending bills and plans seem every day to be drawn up, would endorse such a plan. They could easily find the merits of keeping no account of their expenses and scorning the miserly and the frugal. And so, as you can tell, Nero had a distressingly keen appetite for personal promotion and splendid displays. This led him in the year AD 64 to commit one of history's greatest atrocities, to destroy a city of antique renown. When someone in general conversation quoted the Greek phrase, when I am dead, let earth go up in flames, Nero responded rather, while I live. And with the great fire at Rome in the year A.D. 64, he acted accordingly. For, and I quote now from Suetonius, as if he were upset by the ugliness of the old buildings in the narrow and twisting streets, he set fire to the city. So openly, indeed, that some ex-consuls, when they came upon his servants equipped with kindling and torches on their property, did not stop them. He greatly desired some land near the Golden House, then occupied by granaries, and had them torn down and burnt using military machinery because their walls were made of stone. For six days and seven nights, Destruction raged, and the people were forced to take shelter in monuments and tombs. During that time, besides the enormous number of apartment blocks, the houses of great generals of old, together with the spoils of battle which still adorned them, the temples of the gods, too, which had been vowed and dedicated by Rome's kings and later in the Punic and Gallic Wars, and every other interesting or memorable survival from the olden days, went up in flames. Nero watched the fire from the tower of Messinus, 
delighted with what he termed, quote, the beauty of the flames, end quote, and dressed in his stage attire, he sang of the fall of Troy, end quote. And so, according to the account of Suetonius, as well as that of Tacitus, the saying that Nero fiddled while Rome burned isn't quite appropriate. It's not clear that he had fiddle in hand, but both agree that he did sing of the fall of Troy as his city, or at least the city over which he presided, burned. During the conflagration, he was where he thought he most belonged, on the stage, in front of a private audience to whom he sang out his terrible song. Unfortunately, Suetonius omits many important and intriguing facts about this great conflagration, an event of which it appears he only had partial knowledge. For instance, he says nothing about the secondary fire by which the city was engulfed days after the initial kindling of the town, and very little of the social welfare programs instituted by Nero as an attempt to assuage the population. He says nothing of the hired arsonists or the professional royal incendiaries by whom the flames were fanned. Nero, it's alleged, called upon some of his own people to ensure that the fire persisted. It naturally would have gone out much sooner had it not been for the special task force, this coterie of men dedicated to ensuring that the city was reduced completely and utterly into rubble. For a fuller, richer, uh, and more terrifying depiction of the events of that year, one would have to close Suetonius, thank him for his efforts, and turn his attention to Tacitus, the greatest Roman historian ever to have lived. There, in his annals, one will find a more complete picture of what happened in Rome that year. That said, accepting Herodotus, Thucydides, and the great Edward Gibbon, no historian can be expected to live up to Tacitus's lofty standard. Indeed, Suetonius most certainly falls short of his esteemed countryman and contemporary. And yet, his depiction and portrayal of Nero one of the most detestable figures of all time, is very much deserving of your attention and of your reading. I hope this uh, serves as merely an introduction to his work. I hope that you take this as a foundation upon which you can build your own study of Suetonius and the Roman writers of that first century after the birth of Christ.
And with that, my dear listeners and closest friends, I bid you farewell. <laughs>